0: Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians. This is quite a passage. There is a lot here. And so it's going to be like a really long sermon because there's a lot here. You know, how do you fit it in? Also, I'm going to be gone for the next couple of weeks. And uh, so, again, got to fit like, like three weeks' worth of sermons into one week um, and um, try to get that out. So... You know, sorry guys, hang in there. We're not getting out of here until like three. <laughs> the first service was actually like really worried. They didn't laugh at that joke. they like, oh, he's, he might do it. We're going to read Philippians three twelve through 21, and then we're going to go back and look through it more closely. Philippians 3, 12 through 21 is one of the most um, powerful sections of Philippians, one of the most well-known and this is Paul writing again from prison. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straightening forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Up till this point, we talked last week about Paul's uh, saying to the church in his letter that he takes all of the good things of his life that led up till this point, and he considers all of those things rubbish if they in any way get in the way Of knowing Christ, or if they don't lead him closer to Christ. Now, when Paul talks that way, you have to ask yourself this question, how good must it be for Paul to follow Jesus that he says something like this? That he says, I'm willing to give up everything else if it gets in the way at all to following Jesus. He must really like following Jesus. He must really enjoy following jesus and at the risk of sounding crass i would say that one of the best things that you could compare the way paul describes following jesus to is the way that a person almost describes an addiction loving something so much and gaining so much actual pleasure and joy from a thing that you're willing to take all the other things in your life and say they're rubbish if they get in the way of that thing if they don't lead me to that thing in fact to go one step further he's writing from jail he's writing from jail saying still Anything that gets in the way of me coming to know Christ, of me becoming more familiar with and closer and more like Christ, I count that thing as rubbish. The joy, the almost euphoria that Paul experiences pursuing Christ, the way that he describes it here, is absolutely incredible. And here's what Paul means when he, when he talks about this. He, he says it at the end of the last passage that we looked at last week, and I want to go back to it really fast because it sets up this one. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says that I may know him, that I would first and foremost, that I just would be able to know Jesus as a person have a relationship with him as a person. That's where it starts. And that I long for that, that I would really know Jesus the best that I can. He says that I would know the power of his resurrection, which means Jesus' ability to overcome death and all other things. Jesus has conquered the very thing that we fear the most. And so all of the anxieties and the fears and the things that we worry about in life, more more than most being death, Jesus has conquered that through his resurrection. And I want to know the power of that resurrection because I want to know that there's nothing in my life that will ultimately conquer me or the thing that I'm living for. He says, I want to share in his sufferings because he knows that the sufferings of Christ still somehow brought him closer to the Father and they glorified the Father. And Jesus still praised God in those things. And he says, I want to become, essentially, I want to become like him in every way. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I want to be able to become like him in every way. But what he says here in the beginning of the passage we're in this morning is this. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. He says, as much as I want those things to be like Jesus, to know him that way, to live in those things, I have not already obtained them. And I'm not already perfect. I'm not already there. I haven't gotten it yet fully. Now, this is a big deal because at the time that he's saying this, there's two groups of people that sort of pervade, that are, that are the most abundant in this area, and this world that they live in, both in or outside the church and influencing it. The first is the group of people that they would encounter God or something religious and they would go, what that means then is my whole life has to change. I have to change as a person. I'm completely a new person. And so what I do is I, as I give up all the old things and I follow the laws in every way that I can and I follow the traditions and the rituals and I do all of these things. And the goal of doing these things is to change myself into a person that, you know, God or the deity that I worship likes and is glorified by. And people like that, people who tend to be more legalistic and religious, which were the a, a large group of people at the time, those people typically will go really hard up to a certain point, and then they'll say, you know, I've arrived. I'm pretty good, right? Uh, I've worked really hard at this. I've gotten to the point where my act's together. My life is cleaned up. I'm officially a good person now, and now I can just kind of be done. I've arrived. I've attained it. And to that group of people, Paul is saying, I haven't even attained this thing called following Christ fully in all the things that I have done. And so how could these people be saying something that's true, that we should actually live that way? In fact, most of the people that you may know who you think of, when I describe a religious person who thinks they've arrived and that they're done and wants to spend the rest of their time, if anything, just telling everybody else how they need to arrive and they need to be done, That's kind of what you think of with that person. The other group of people that existed were people who believed that when you have some kind of spiritual transformation inside of you, that happens in here and it doesn't really matter what you do with with these and with your body and with the physical things that you do in your life. Spiritual stuff's inside. How could the God of the universe or whatever God that you worship really care about how you live your life and the actions that you take and the relationships that you're in and the things that you say with your mouth and and the way you behave? That's, That's like beneath... That's all beneath because the physical world, the physical things, that stuff doesn't even matter. And so to those people, you become transformed spiritually and then you just live however you want. You've already arrived, you're done, you're perfect, you're good, and it doesn't matter now how you live moving forward. To that group of people as well, Paul is saying, but I haven't even already been transformed. I haven't arrived yet. I haven't taken hold of this thing that I want. But Paul says this instead. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, what I want, the goal and the object of my life is out in front of me, and it is not yet attained. I can maybe see it, but I cannot yet fully reach it. It is not within my grasp, and so I need to get there, and that goal, the getting there, is so important to me that it eclipses every other thing in my life. What is that like? To see something out in front of you and to say that I want that more than anything else and I'm going to devote myself to that thing alone more than anything else. And I'm going to go until I get it. That's called a race. That's called running a race. And that's exactly what Paul uses to describe what this whole process is like. This is all about winning and accomplishing and taking hold of a prize. And so what Paul says is, no matter where I am in life, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the cost is, I press on. Paul says this in prison, in jail, after living a pretty impressive life up till this point. He says, I press on. So no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the realities are, no matter where you're at personally, Paul's words are, I press on. And those are to be our words as well. I press on. If I'm at work, I press on. If I'm at home with my family, I press on. If I'm having coffee with one of my friends, I press on. Even if I'm on vacation, I press on. If I'm dealing with my kids, I press on. If it's finals week, or if I have a deadline, or it's a particularly exhausting season in my job, I press on still in the race. Even if I'm retired, I press on. If I'm just in school, and I'm going for another year, just like last year and the year before, I press on. If I'm at work and I'm just working another year like last year and the year before, Paul's words to us are press on. If I'm sick and I just want to be better, press on. And if I'm sick and I'm not getting better, press on. I press on is what Paul says. And this is what he's telling the church from jail. This idea of a race, this idea of running towards something and making your life about that thing is something that we're all very familiar with because we get involved in these kinds of races, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not. I was reading a poem a while back that someone gave me, and um, it was a poem that the, that this poet wrote, this author wrote about Going about his commute, basically. And he wrote this poem about, um, I think he rides a subway from the poem, um, but you might still relate to this thing as, as you read this. It's called Commute. Oh, the screech and heat and hate we have for each day's commute, the long wait at the last stop before we go screaming. Underground while all the pigeons court and rut insolently on the tracks because the train is always late, always aimed at only us, who, when it comes with us, blunts out its thousand mouths, cram and curse and contort into one creature, all claws and eyes, tunneling, tunneling, tunneling toward money. I love this poem because he describes something that so many people have experienced, which is just getting there every day. This brought me back to growing up in Southern California and having my first job out of college and sitting in my car in traffic constantly toward money. Why am I doing this toward money? Why am I doing this again today toward money? I, I keep going in a loop, it seems, back and forth toward money. We know the races that we become a part of We know that we can live that way as if we're running a race and pressing on, even if it doesn't give us joy, even if it's just what our life necessitates. But Paul's words are press on, and like any good coach, and this is exactly what he is here, like a guy on the sideline holding a stopwatch with a clipboard and a whistle and whatever else helps you think of Paul as a coach in this analogy, he gives them some very good advice. The first thing he says is this, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Kind of an an important rule in running a race. Don't look back. If you look back, it will slow you down. Now, what Paul's talking about here is not looking back at the distant past like before the race started this morning and I was having breakfast or yesterday when I was watching TV. He's talking about the race that you've already run. He's saying, don't look back at the part of the race that you've already won, but strain forward to what lies ahead. Now, what Paul's saying here is really important because, again, taking the life that he's lived and the things that he's done and the position that he's in, what we hear Paul saying here is I'm not gonna glory in the achievements that I have. I'm not going to use those things as an excuse to stop running the race. I'm not going to look back at those things that I've already done. It doesn't matter where I come from. It doesn't matter how impressive my past have been, the degrees I have, the strides I've made. In fact, if any of those things cause me to slow down towards, receiving, towards getting to Christ because I look back, then those things are rubbish. Those things are now harming me. Now, if you've ever been in the front in a race, I have very little experience with this, but if you've ever had experience in this, being in the front of a pack, you know, the, one of the weird things about it is you have no idea what's going on behind you. you. You don't know how far back anybody is. You could be lapping them, you could be right in front of them, and you could be just barely ahead. You don't know. But what you know is that if you look back, just to see where is everyone, and what are they doing, and where are they going, and how's this race running, and how have I been doing, it will slow you down. There is no retirement from following Jesus. We may physically be able to buy an RV and travel around and see the sights, but we cannot spiritually buy an RV and travel around and see the sights because of the life that we've lived up to a certain point, as much as that may be hard to believe. Paul has done just about more for the gospel than anybody else that we would ever hear from. And he's in jail and he doesn't stop and say, I've done enough. I can rest in what I've done. I don't have to keep pressing on. I'm good now. I've attained it. I've achieved it. He says, I don't look back on the things that I've done because they would slow me down. You don't say, look at, look, I look back and I see that time when I was really teachable and I was really moldable and I let God work in me and I let God change me and do some really big things. That was really great. Remember that? That was good. That was good. It's over now, I'm done. I can take a break, I can coast, I can slow down. We don't look back and say, you, you, but, but my life used to be such a mess and now I've cleaned it up. God, like I've, I've got a new life, I've got a better life. I look better, things look better, things are different now, everything's changed. I took care of it all. I can, I can relax, look, because that was my story. You wanna hear my testimony? I'll tell you all about what happened back then, what used to be done, what God was doing before. And I look back to it. And Paul says, "Don't do that. Forget what you have done and focus on what you have to do." Jesus had a really unusual way of calling us to do this. He said that when you give with your left hand, you don't let your right hand know what what you're doing, which is crazy. How can you do that? How can you give with your left hand not know what your right hand's doing? Right? Not let your right hand know what you're doing. Why does he say that? He says that because he says we are to do things in a way that we ourselves don't keep track of the things that we have done. We ourselves don't live today because of the way that we lived yesterday, because of the way that we behaved yesterday. I did something good yesterday. I don't have to do something good today. I followed Jesus really hard yesterday. I don't have to follow Jesus today. I ran the race really well yesterday. I can take a break from running the race today. He says don't live that way because it will slow you down. But he's not just talking about the good things that we look back on. He's talking about all the things that you look back on and you look behind on. That you look back and you say, I won't look back and believe the lie that who I used to be and my history and my failures and my past, that all my baggage and all the ways I've seen myself as a broken person, and that's what's defined me up till this point, that I won't believe that all of that yesterday dictates tomorrow, dictates today. I will not look back on those things and let those things dictate that. Now, that doesn't mean that we kind of obsessively have to try to reinvent ourselves, you know, in in sort of like a self-help, kind of like motivational sort of way. I don't look back on who I am. I don't let those things slow me down. I become great because this isn't for our glory. This is for his glory. But it does mean that through Christ, I'm not defined just by my history. and bound by that thing. The enemy loves to tell us that this is who you are. That is who you are and who you'll always be. So don't worry about trying to change it and trying to get past it and trying to live in any kind of a new light. Paul says to that, forget what lies behind. That's what I do. I forget what lies behind and I strain on, strain toward what lies ahead. What kind of an athlete? stops before the race is over what kind of an athlete just goes Yeah, i did pretty good i'm done i'm fine i don't need to grab hold of the thing at the end or reach the goal straining doesn't sound very natural does it straining doesn't sound like a comfortable word i don't really like that word straining the the very sound of it for some reason stresses me out straining it makes me think of like I was talking to somebody after the first service about about the kind of straining that you do to test things and how strong they are. You ever go to Ikea and you see like a chair with a big weight that they're dropping in the chair? Do you guys have that here? And it's just like they're testing the chair and you can see it and it's just like, you know, all day, every day, testing it to see how strong it is, testing it to see. And you're supposed to look at that and go, wow, that's really resilient. But you're just like, that's kind of a weird thing to have in a furniture store, but okay. We are not, straining doesn't describe something that you just kind of happen to find yourself doing. You know, you just happen to fall into. It just happened to be where the circumstances led you today. Straining means that you're trying and you're working and you're pushing and you're exerting yourself. It's hard and it hurts. It's effort. But you reach out. You get your legs moving. You feel the burn. You strain. Paul says, I strain, that's how hard I try. Forward always towards the goal. This is what Jesus talks about in, uh, in John 15, where he talks about remaining. Jesus says, I am the vine and you're the branches, and no matter what's going on in your life or what you're doing, remain in me. Remain in me because in me is life, and if you're disconnected from me, you'll find death and you'll experience death. Even if it's slowly, you'll experience death. And so keep going, no matter what is happening, no matter how good or how difficult things are, remain in me, which is another way of saying, press on, keep going, all the time. It doesn't matter that you, uh, that you remain yesterday if you decide not to remain tomorrow, because I want you to focus on now, whether you're connected now, whether you're pressing on now. And it's hard to do this because we have these voices inside of our head that compete, that tell us different things about pressing on and about remaining, about straining ourselves when it gets really difficult and it's not convenient. We have our own voice, which is the flesh, that says to us, you've already done enough, you've already worked hard enough, I think it's time to just take a break. You deserve a break. Just take it easy, slow down, stop, take a rest. That's pretty much the voice in my head when I'm running all the time, from the moment I start you've done enough. Just take a break. It's kind of the same voice that says, you're getting further if I'm like, you know, getting, running from my house. You're getting further if you don't stop now. Think about what happens. You have to get back somehow, right? That's the flesh. That is the voice of me saying, I think you've done enough. You have enough to be proud of. You can stop here. We have the voice of the enemy, the voice of the enemy in our ear constantly saying, this race is stupid, and you're never going to finish this race, and you're never going to win, and you're not going to do very well, so just stop. And we have the voice of God saying, push on, keep going, be like Christ. Remain, abide. The voice of God saying those things all the time. Which is why we try to say them to each other. We try to encourage each other with those words because we know what do I say about this? What do I say in this? Well, what I do know for sure is this press on, remain, abide, keep going, even when it hurts because of the strain of doing that constantly. And there are good times and there are easy times that it feels like it's easy to run and it's easy to press on, and it's easy, and there are the difficult times. There are the times where it feels like the run is downhill all the way, and there's times when it feels like pressing on is an uphill battle completely, and there are times that we lose things on the race. We lose things as we're pressing on, and as painful as that is, they are still a reminder to us that if anything else, that we can still focus on Christ and keep running, even having lost those things. And there are times that things are good, that we have good things that we experience that happen, that make the race easier, that make the running easier, and we rejoice in those things. But we can't ever let the race become about those things, because then we stop running the race. It's like if you're running, and you're feeling lonely, and somebody comes up alongside you to run with you, and you talk, and you have some camaraderie, and you find some encouragement from one another, and you're enjoying running with them, and then all of a sudden you realize they're running a little bit slower than me, and if I want to stick with them, then I've got to just run at the pace at which they're running. But if Primarily, my goal is to push on and to run this race the best that I can. I have to keep my eyes fixed on the race rather than any of the good things that I might experience along the way, which is constantly what we deal with, right? When things are good, we want life to be about those things. And when they're hard, it is a hard lesson, but it is not impossible to see the truth that the more that we shed, sometimes the quicker that we can run. Paul describes it this way. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says it's an upward call. It's taking me up somewhere better. And he describes that. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. He's saying the goal here, that that word mature is the same word they use for perfect in the beginning of this passage. But in this context, it's always used as mature, especially when Paul's writing, because Paul talks a lot about growing up, and he says this is the mature mentality to have, and our goal in this race as we run further and further along is that we mature, that we grow up. That's what we're doing as we're racing and as we're running, as we're maturing and we're growing up, and believe it or not, maturity is tremendously important for life. It's tremendously important for the world that we live in. In life, the way maturity works is we're born, we mature, and then we die. One of the great tragedies of life is that the more that we mature, the older we get, the more frail we get, and the closer to death that we become. But in the kingdom of God, that's not how it works. The more that we mature, we don't get closer to spiritual death. We can continue maturing on into the kingdom. But maturity is so much more important than anything else. You can be the smartest person in the room. You can have all all of the intelligence and all of the knowledge and all of the information, but if you're not mature, then you can do very little with that. You can be physically the strongest person. You can grow up in all the physical ways that matter, and you can be physically capable of accomplishing much, but without maturity, you can cause just as much damage with all of that as you can cause good. You can be wealthy and financially have a lot of resources. You can have a tremendous amount financially. You can have accumulated much over the course of your life, but without maturity, your money can cause just as much harm as it can good. And we see that all the time. We see that in athletes. We see that in entrepreneurs. We see that in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street. We see that in those who inherit great sums of money. We see what happens when you get a lot of money and you don't have maturity to go along with it, that it it can destroy you. The immature are like big babies. They're just big, dumb babies. And we just fumble around, making a mess. Fumbling around. And all of our strength and our intelligence and all of our resources that can go to just making a mess instead of accomplishing something for the kingdom. And so this word for maturity, it also means to be up to the task. It means to be actually complete and useful. The goal is to be useful and up to the task. You would use the same word to describe like a bridge that is functioning. And I don't know a lot about bridges, but I know that I only wanna go on bridges that are up to the task. That's really all I care about bridges, is that they work as bridges. Then in that sense, they be mature and complete. And the way that this happens is that as we run the race and as we press on and as we mature, we begin to shed sin. We begin to work through sin in our life because that's why the race is often so difficult. It's because running the race towards Christ means letting go of things that are sinful in our life. Now, the good news that Paul tells us elsewhere in the New Testament is that we can get past sin. And he says the reason why is because we aren't slaves to sin. He says that because of what Jesus has done and because we live in the Spirit that we're no longer slaves to sin, but that we are children of God, which means that there is no sin, there is no thing that we are a slave to that we cannot get away from. We have a choice. No sin is so great, is so powerful, is so strong that we cannot be free from it. Otherwise, we would be a slave to it. Think it imagine that you were at Starbucks and you were talking to a friend of yours and they were talking to you about their job again and about how much they hate their job again because this is all your friend talks about. They're telling you how much they hate their boss, how much they hate the hours, how much they hate the work they have to do, how much they hate the little pay, how much they hate the, the time that it takes and the commute getting there. They hate the cubicles. They hate the demands. Week after week, they complain about their job. And it does sound pretty bad. You're like, this does sound like a pretty bad job. I'm glad I don't have their job, but I'm also sick of hearing them complain. And so the advice that you would give that person, hopefully, after enough of those little sessions, is you would say, then quit. Then quit your job. Get another job. And they, oh, I can't. I won't make as much money. So what? Make less money. Quit your job. You're miserable, right? And who knows? You probably could make as much money if you maybe had a little bit of confidence and went out and tried to find a better job. But just quit your job. Just stop with this. Now, what if that person saying all those things that you were sitting across from was a slave? Then what would your advice be? If they had no control over their job or their boss or any of the circumstances and they had no way out, what would you do then? You wouldn't tell them to quit. You would tell them how to cope with their job. You would tell them how to get through in their job. You would help encourage them in their job. And you might even, if it's really bad, just remind them of the life to come, whether that's retirement or whether that's heaven. You would go, hey, you know, one day you won't have to do this at all maybe. Which is a common thing that we hear and that we see in communities of slaves. Much of the encouragement comes about the life that is to come, not even the life here. And the reason you do that is because a person who is a slave, they can't get out, they can't get away, they can't change it. And Paul says to us that we are not slaves to sin. We don't have to sit there day in and day out talking about how bad this thing is and how miserable it makes our life and how much it beats us up and how powerful and strong of a hold it has over us. He says, you're not a slave, so quit. So stop it. So move on. And some of us need to hear that. Today, some of us need to know that we are not a slave to this thing, to these things. That even though they feel so big, and even though they've always been a part of our lives, and even though it's like, this is always who I am going to be or what I'm going to deal with, that that doesn't have to be true in Christ because you're not a slave to it anymore. That you're free from that thing. And that pressing on and running the race means not looking back on that thing, but moving forward. One of the hardest things I've heard as I've talked to people about beating addiction is believing that you can actually, that life is worth living without this thing. That you can live life without this thing. And that's what continues to draw people back so often, is feeling like, I just need this in order for life to be livable, to be worth living. Believing that this thing doesn't have to be a part of your life forever and have to define you forever. And apart from the fact that we don't have to sin, what we also know is that we actually shouldn't sin. So it's not just that we don't have to, that we're free from sin. You, you might believe that. You might be like, no, no, I'm not a slave to sin. You know, I'm, that's fine. But do you believe that sin is actually a bad thing in your life? Do you believe that it actually does lead to death? That it actually does lead to destruction? Do you believe that there actually is an enemy that is prowling and waiting like a lion to devour you? There have been times in my life where I have encountered something in the Bible, and it has made me realize that something in my life is sin, but I don't really dislike the thing, and I really struggle to see how it's so bad. And I'm like, where? where, where? Like, why is this bad? Why is this a big deal? Maybe I shouldn't do it. I probably shouldn't do it. But you know what? Everybody does it. Or I don't really see the problem in doing it. And in those times, the only thing that I can do is I can look on all the other things that I have seen lead to death from sin, and I can go, but I know that that's true of sin. And I know that if this is sin, then it means that it will lead to death. And I don't really want that. Then, apart from just not sinning because I don't have to, I also know that I'm free to not do it. One of the things that could be so discouraging at time in youth ministry. And this is true with people of all ages, but I think it was exacerbated in youth ministry because people um, aren't, you know, adults are better at hiding things, which, um, you know, which is really kind of nice about youth ministry is you can kind of see what's happening a little bit easier in front of you. Is, Is any student at any point, at any time in their spiritual walk, they really could just decide, I'm just gonna take a break from this for a while. And they just stopped showing up. They just stop doing it. They just stop hanging out with good friends or, you know, reading the Bible or coming to church or caring about the, the community. And it's not because they stopped believing. It's not because they became an atheist or anything like that. It's just because they're like, I just, I just need to have some fun for a while. I just need to take a break, you know? And honestly, this is a part of growing up. Part of growing up is just taking a break sometimes, right? It's called like sowing your oats and you go to college, Right? You just go, hey, I, gotta, I know, I know, not good, everything. But everybody has to do some things that aren't good, right? Everybody's got to kind of test the limits. Everybody's got to kind of see what the world is like. That's an important thing. And you look at that from ahead there, from, from past that point in life, and you go, no, that's not true. Everyone doesn't have to do that. It's actually foolish to do that thing. Why? Because that stuff does lead to death. Even if you don't see it right now. And people of all ages have the ability to do that. We can know that something's sin, know that it's not good, but go, yeah, but you know, it's still kind of nice. And it's okay. And it won't get in the way. While sin may be understandable, that doesn't mean that sin is acceptable. And while we may understand why we're prone to it and why other people sin so often, it doesn't mean that we should just accept it and say, it's going to be a part of things in my life all the time, but instead say, then as I press on, And as I remain, then I don't have to be a slave to this thing anymore, and I could be free from it. Paul says before all of this, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is the goal, this is what Paul is running towards. He's wanting to become more like Jesus the more he runs this race, but he sees, he sees this thing that is not within his grasp yet, but he keeps pressing on, and he encourages the church to do the very same thing. And the reason Paul does this is because there is absolutely no greater life than the life that can be lived running this race, than the life that can be lived in pursuing Jesus. There is no greater life Pastors for years have called it different things, a purpose-driven life, Uh, not wasting your life as you are desiring God. John Wesley calls it living a holy life or a sanctified life. This process is being sanctified, but it's because you see, you go, okay, wait, let me get, so in heaven, I'm going to be perfect? Okay. Is there any way that I could be a little bit more like that tomorrow than I am today? Because I would like to be that way. And running this race is saying, I'm gonna press on and I'm gonna to, to run towards that because I believe that as difficult as it may be and as painful as it may be, as much as the strain might hurt and as many things I might have to shed and ignore along the way, I believe that there is no better use of a life than running this race and pressing in and pressing on. And the reason Paul says that he does it And this is the difference between this and a lot of other things that tell you here's a race you can run. It's a difference between the gospel and between religion is that Paul says, I take hold of this because Christ has first taken hold of me. He says, the reason I want to do this is because Jesus took hold of me and he saved me. And because of that, I am grateful and I want him more. The difference between the gospel and religion is religion says, if I run this race really well and I try really hard and I discipline myself and I get all this sin out of my life, then God will accept me and love me. But what the gospel says is it says, because God accepts you and loves you, because Jesus loves you and has taken a hold of you, you then can live this way. You then can run this race. And I say that and that's important because if you're here and you are not a part of, of the kingdom, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't believe in the gospel and have not given your life over to that and trusted in him for your life, if you haven't done that, then you can't just start running a race and trying to be good and trying to press on and all the, all the difficulty that comes with it and think that that will get you there. That will only make you a more disciplined, nicer, better behaving person. But it won't make you someone closer, any closer to, to that goal, that prize that Paul's talking about of Christ. He says the only way to do that is to first say that I, I, I realize I receive what Christ, the gift that Christ gives me of eternal life, that I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I, that, I have, that I need to repent, and I need to turn around towards him, and I need to run towards him, because life is in him, it's not in all the things that I could try to do. We know that doing that, that living that way, is the absolute best use of a life. We know that no matter how much pain that might bring us, and no matter how much trial that might bring us and how much difficulty that might bring us, we know, regardless of any of those things, it is still the absolute best way that we could live this life that we have is running this race. This is what Paul is telling us. This is what he's telling the church in Philippi, and he's telling them this from prison. If there is one thing, well, not one thing, but one of the things that prison and that jail give people is perspective. They say that a lot when they Put people in jail. They say, "Hopefully, give, this will give you some perspective. Maybe you'll have some time to get some perspective, right?" Now, if you're if you're the prison guard chained to Paul, you get you're the one that gets perspective, right? Paul doesn't get perspective because he's going to share the gospel with everybody that he's around, and it's going to make them realize the truth of these things. But Paul's saying this from prison. He's saying it from jail. He's saying it because he is offering us perspective. He's saying, this is what life really is. This is what life is really about. This is what life is really lived for. And as he's saying these things, he's doing it with so much joy and so much gratefulness and such euphoria at following Christ that we cannot help but look at it and say, I want that. I want to run that race with him. And that we can be encouraged and know that we're not running it alone. That we're running it together. That we're all running the race and seeking to remain and stay connected together and that that is a lot more enjoyable than just running by ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for who you are, for what you have done. We are so grateful that you give us words like these from Paul, very practical words that encourage us and remind us of exactly what it looks like and what it takes to run this race. I pray for those who cannot stop looking backwards at the failures and the baggage and the hurts and the brokenness that cannot stop letting those things define them in the future, I pray that you would give them a sense of liberation and freedom from those things because of you. And I pray for those who cannot stop taking pride in the life they've lived up to this point, thinking that that's enough and that they've already arrived and they've already done it, that rather than rest on their accomplishments and achievements, that they would instead just continue to press on. And Father, I pray for those for whom the race right now is really, really hard. That it feels uphill and that the strain hurts. I pray, Lord, that you would keep their eyes fixed upon you. That you would help us to see you the object of our faith. That we would reach out for you and that we would know and be reminded of why we are running this race and how good it is, and that the prize is worthy, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Father, we sing that again and again because ultimately keeping our vision fixed upon you, our gaze fixed upon you, is the most important thing that we can do, Lord. That we can't run any race or walk in any straight line without fixing our gaze first on a a point in the distance, Lord, our desire is to do that with you. We know that we cannot walk straight or run straight or live rightly, Lord, if our gaze isn't fixed upon you regardless of what we're going through. And it's hard in the storms, it's hard in the waves. It's hard when there are so many things in life telling us to shift our gaze onto them, to care about them or be afraid of them. And our prayer is that you would help us to do that. Help all the other things to drown out. Help us put blinders onto them if we need to so that we can fix our gaze upon you and we can walk to you and run to you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.